Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Accidental Activist, presented by Mercedes-Benz. Before each episode this season, as a part of the I Am Mercedes campaign, we'll be profiling different young women named Mercedes who are all chasing big dreams. I am Mercedes. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, and I'm 18 years old. I have a dream of owning my own business one day. I think from a really young age, I kind of wanted to start my own business. My wonderful mom, I love her so much. She started a basketball business. Seeing her like live out her passions, being successful, that really inspired me to create my own business and just achieve success. Although we have come a long way with, you know, women being in business, there still is like a gap between men and women. It's all about kind of defying those social expectations and showing the world that we as women, we can have our own business and we can achieve big goals. And I think it's especially important for women of color. After learning about the Mercedes campaign, I became super confident in my name. And I think it's very important for the girls who are named Mercedes to kind of own their name and be confident and be proud that they are named this because our name does have a lot of meaning. What a great story from an amazing young woman. And now onto this week's episode. School's in session. Have a seat. To be black, period, and then to be queer on top of that, there were things for us to do, but not necessarily things that I wanted to do. Okay. The category is Bring It Like Royalty. Allow me to introduce myself. I am your fabulous godmother. I'm speaking it out loud for the first time with you. Judges your scores. I'm thriving. I'm not dying. I have the disease and I'm living. Hello, everyone. I'm Aisha Sasei, and welcome back to The Accidental Activist, the show where we discover how an accidental turn of events can spark one's passion to change the world. Today, I'm joined by the one and only Billy Porter. Billy first graced our screens in the early 90s when he won the American talent show Star Search. Back then, I don't think the world really had an idea of the full range of his unique and extraordinary talent. In the years since, Billy Porter has become one of Broadway's brightest lights, acting in Angels in America, Dreamgirls, and Kinky Boots, just to name a few. But it was in 2018 that Billy Porter became a global household name, starring as Pray Tell in FX's groundbreaking drama, Pose. I was so excited to have Billy Porter on the show and hear his thoughts on being a trailblazer, his decades of using his voice and platform in support of the LGBTQ community, as well as his decision to share his HIV diagnosis and, of course, his now legendary sense of style. 
The conversation is full of Billy's trademark wit and wisdom. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Billy Porter, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. (laughs) I'm so thrilled that you're here, honestly. I want to start with the question of voice and really your singing voice. When did you realize not just that you could sing, but that your voice had the power to move people? I sang around the age of five. I started singing in church. They started giving me solos. And I liked it a lot. It was probably around the fifth grade, so I would say around 10 years old. I was in elementary school and I was getting bullied a lot. And there was a talent show. And I sang at the talent show. And the bullying stopped. Wow. Immediately, it stopped. I was very rarely bullied after that. And like the bullies were like, oh, yo, no, that's that kid that sings real good. Leave him alone. So there was a respect for having something that you could do that nobody else could do. Sort of like a superpower. Yeah, yeah. And so it became my superpower, my weapon, my savior, my shield, everything. You know, what I find fascinating about that is that you discovered your voice in the church. They started giving you solos. That was a place where this part of you was being celebrated, but the rest of you was now not welcome. Right. And that, that tension, I was thinking about you today, and I thought, what a tension to grow up with. There's this part that they think, oh, this is great, but the rest of you, yeah. Not feeling that. Talk to me about that tension. It's interesting that you call it a tension. That's exactly the right word. The homophobia was swift, immediate, and unrelenting. Before I could even really understand or know anything about myself, I was at a psychologist. I was at a psychologist at five at kindergarten because I was too much of a sissy that early. You've been quizzing saying your muscles or your ability to compartmentalize is strong. Yes. And I'm thinking that must have started at a very young age. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It started that early because I didn't have anywhere to go but to myself and my mind. The thing that I I think about when I think about Pentecostalism is the severity of the religion. It's dictates, it's, you know, fire and sin and abomination. (laughs) You know, it's harsh. So what did you see for your future growing up? I could sing. And my singing was going to get me out. My singing allowed for me to dream beyond my circumstance. My singing put me in rooms where I would not have otherwise would have been. It was special. And so I found myself in spaces that on paper I wasn't really supposed to be in. And it allowed for me to be able to dream. I think one of the most difficult 
parts about being Black in this country, being descendant of slaves. There's a systemic space that we exist in that we don't even know that we're existing in, where dreaming is not possible. That's right. Limitation is the norm. It's the norm, right? And so where I'm from, many, many African-Americans turn to religion to sort of put a Band-Aid on the truth. And that was a way of us finding a space to just live. We've done a lot of forsaking of ourselves here in the present for what we can get after we die on the other side. Yeah. yeah. And because of my voice, because of the gift that God gave me, I knew and understood that I could have peace and I could have joy and I could celebrate my life on this side right now because I saw other people doing it, particularly white people. I saw white people enjoying their lives and living dreams. And it was interesting because it was my art. You know, I say my voice, but then my voice, blessedly, I was in these rooms with creative people who helped me then expand my creativity. My voice was just the mustard seed, as we say in church, of the gift. And it was because of that gift that I was then able to expand my art, which has been the thing that has been consistent and has saved me. One of the things I I thought was quite intriguing was that as a child, you discovered two powers, the power of your voice and its ability to move people. And even as a child, the power of fashion. I thought that was super interesting as well. Like you connected with those two truths. You know, you were getting dressed up or gussied up, as we say in the UK. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Even as a kid. Yeah, I think that part comes from the church. That part comes from my age. I was born in 69. So, like, Civil Rights Acts had just been passed. The Black Civil Rights Movement was about education, was about forward mobility, upward mobility. And the only way to do that, you know, the first thing was to look good. And looking good in that space meant wearing a suit. That's right. That's what you wore. My two favorite times of year were Easter and Christmas because I got a new suit every Easter and every Christmas. And I continued that tradition with myself all the way through my 30s, you know, at least into my mid-30s. But also, my grandmother was a seamstress. She made a lot of clothing for the ladies. When I look back at old photos and stuff, my whole family was snatched. I love it. You know, you went to church was the opposite of what many of our parents, they had to wear uniforms, whether they were domestics or whether they were working in a plant or whatever, they had to wear these uniforms. And so church was a space where they could embrace themselves and like you said, get gussied up and show the world who they are, who they were. The voice took you beyond Pittsburgh and... Carnegie Mellon and these rooms where you were embraced and now you're trying to break into theater. 
as a black queer man. What was that journey like? What were the compromises that were asked of you or that you asked of yourself? Yeah, I was very lucky and blessed to have an undeniable gift. And so to be Black, period, and then to be queer on top of that, and then to be in theater, which is a very white space, there were things for us to do, but not necessarily things that I wanted to do. Multidimensional, which is what you've also talked about. Yeah, I could be in musical reviews and sing and dance. Case in point, I was in Smokey Joe's Cafe. I was in Five Guys Named Mo. I was in the chorus of Miss Saigon, but it wasn't until 10 years into my career that I finally got to play the role of John in that show. But the door was not really open to me for three-dimensional characters, human beings, human stories, with something to say. We didn't get that. And my generation was really the generation that fought to be seen as human and not just clowns. Nothing wrong with being a clown when you're a good clown. There's a space for that, too. You know, and I'm a very good clown. And I wanted more than that. I wanted more than just to be seen as a clown. There were stories for me to tell. I'm here, as James Baldwin says, as a witness. I want to represent my communities and tell our stories. And so I made a conscious decision. I was cast as the teen angel in the revival of Greece. And I didn't want to do it anyway. It wasn't a musical that I wanted to do. My agent at the time, who is now my manager, he was really keen on the idea because, to his credit, he knew that it was going to open doors for me. And it did. And those doors were very specific. And I was pigeonholed into this clown space. You know, they had me in 14 inches of orange rubber hair a white space suit, and I was prancing around, as I say, like a little Richard Automaton on crack. (laughs) You know, blowing the roof off the joint every night, yes. But to what end for me? At the end of the day, the road that that was taking me down was not a road that I was interested in as an artist. And so I had to make a really hard choice to walk away from the opportunities that came with that particular pigeonhole. I do want to take a moment just to underscore the bravery that takes, not even because being Black and queer, just being Black, full stop, saying no to an opportunity, takes incredible bravery, particularly from people, if you've experienced rejection a great deal, it is hard to be the one who walks away. You know, people talk about that all the time. With me, and I'd never experienced it as that in the moment. For me in the moment, I didn't have any other choice. I was like, I'm not doing this. I'm worth more than this. I don't quite know why I understood that. Faith? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I had faith. 
But I also saw what was in the market and I knew what I brought. I saw it in real time. And I was like, I'm just as good and better than everything I'm seeing of the people who are getting the jobs that I want. So this is unacceptable to me. So I have to figure out how to make it acceptable. And I have to take the road less traveled so that I could get to the other side of this conversation. You know, there would be no Hamilton. There would be no Lin-Manuel Miranda, but for my generation and the generations that came before me, that consistently beat the doors down. And pushed the boundaries of what was possible and pushed the boundaries of the definition Mm -hmm. or the expectation of Black talent. Yes. The talent from people of color. Yeah. When I came out, you're Black, you sing like this, you stop the shows, but you're not human. That's right. Just like we are in regular life. They said we're three-fifths of a human being. We're dehumanized so that we can be vilified. And it's not new. It's a microcosm of the system, the systemic issues that exist in every space. In retrospect, I understand that it was brave and courageous. In retrospect. At the time, I was just doing and making the choices that I had to make and doing what I had to do. I was like, I'm doing it like this. (laughs) And I have the talent to. God gave me the talent to do it, right? I think that's the part about me in my younger age that I did know. And I love auditioning because it was the only space where I was able to prove myself. You don't think that I can. And here it is, I can. And I'm better than everybody in this room. And the reason why I can say that is because at that time, I would audition for all the amusement parks, all the cruise ships. It was like communal auditions. So everybody was in the room and you got up and you auditioned in the room with everybody there. So you saw what everybody else had to offer. I'm speaking this out loud for the second time. I wrote it in my book, but that's a part that got cut. Really? I'm speaking it out loud for the first time with you. That's why I knew I'm not an ego-driven person. So it's hard for me to say this out loud, but I was just as good and very often better than everybody else in the room, always. And I wasn't getting the jobs. There was a thing they would do, they would call you back, they call you back, they call you back to the dance, they call you back to sing, and then they put you in the line and say, okay, you are our picks from this city, you're on file, expect to hear from us. And that would be it. And that would be it for me. Because they had to keep me to the end because everybody else saw in the room that I was better too. So they couldn't cut me in front of people because I was better. I was the best person in the room. I remember auditioning for Disney. And I I think I auditioned for like three or four years. And in that last time I was there, there was a musical director who was from Pittsburgh. And he was a big musical director down at the Disney parks. 
And he pulled me aside and said, don't come back here. And I said, why? And he was like, they're never going to hire you. Don't come back here. Do not waste your time. You're worth more than this. And they're not going to hire you. I said, why? And he said, it's hard to explain. And you're not going to understand it right now. But like, you're beyond this. You stand out. They don't want people to stand out too much. You could make the argument they don't want Black people to stand out too much. At that point, they didn't want Black people. But they were putting in one Black couple everywhere. But anyway, I was in the rooms. So I saw the truth. But Lola and Kinky Boots, that now placed you center stage. Yes. The Tony, the Grammy. So now, for someone who has been visible, but to be recognized and fully seen, Mm -hmm. let's say that, now you're center stage. And you are being seen. The industry is validating you. What did that visibility mean to you? Well, it took so long to get there. And I don't say that as a negative. Because once again, in retrospect, who I am and what I represent, I stand at the intersection of these conversations that need a leader. And I needed to understand and learn how to be a leader and a witness before I could have that kind of responsibility. It's a responsibility. I have a responsibility as a Black gay Christian man in this world. Was that clarified for you with the success of Lola in Kinky Boots? Yeah, because of who Lola is. The character of Lola had never existed before on Broadway in the commercial theater. A Black drag queen who's the star of the show and the emotional center of the story. It never existed before. And the character is written Black, not we're casting a Black person in it. The closest would be Alban from La Cage and they would never cast a Black person in that show at that time. Not even in 2013 would they do it. It's like the following year, Hedwig and the Angry Inch was on Broadway with Neil Patrick Harris. And I had remembered 18 years prior begging to audition. They wouldn't even let me audition. No way. And then they came to me a year after I won the Tony and asked me to replace Neil Patrick Harris. And I was like, why Why would I do that? I already made my own way out of no way. I don't need to now go back and be in the shadow of a white boy. Sorry, I'm just saying it like it is now. When I asked you and begged you 18 years ago to give me an audition, it was an unequivocal no. So my answer to you all now is no. And on top of that, you ain't going to close this show on my back. With the visibility of Lola and the platform growing, what was your understanding of your responsibility now to use your voice in a different way? What was the conversation you were having with yourself about utilizing this moment for the good of others? It was my queerness. And, you know, I had watched Oprah. She had on Ayanna Van Sant and Maya Angelou. 
And they were talking about service. And their theory was when you shift your intention to service in your life, everything else will work itself out. And so I asked myself, I was like, what does that look like for me? I don't understand what that looks like for me. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. Your queerness is your service. Everything that everybody is telling you is your liability. That's your service. So when Lola came around and Harvey Firestein, who made a living and his career is based on his white queerness, his white Jewish queerness, but his white queerness, he came to Lola to write the book and decided that Lola was going to be straight because he was tired of being the spokesperson, I guess, for queerness. He had already done that. There's an unawareness that it's never been done for somebody who looks like me. You did it for yourself. You know, he wrote the book for the quintessential Lacage Faux. He wrote the book for that musical. Just like he wrote the book for Kinky Boots, he wrote the book for Lacage Faux 30 years prior. That's a white man playing a drag queen who's the center of the story. So now my journey in Kinky Boots became get the part, keep your head up, keep your focus, show them what you're going to do with the role, and then make it clear and plain that the character will not be straight in any way, shape, or form. And that's exactly what I did. Everybody saw what I was doing with the role, and I said, okay, and I called to come to Jesus. I said, okay. So now that you see what I'm doing with the part, it's not ambiguous. I am queer. It's not straight man in a dress. It's not safe. I am gay. I am queer. Lola is queer. After everything that I've gone through in my life to get here, to have this moment, and it finally happened, and I show up playing a drag queen on Broadway and say that the character is straight, it's irresponsible for me to do so, and I will not do that. Lola elevates. Yes. Gives you visibility. Gives you that moment for you to recognize what your service is. Yes. Time for a quick break. We'll have more of my conversation with Billy Porter when we come back. Welcome back, everyone. Here's the second half of my conversation with Billy Porter. And then it's followed. And I know there are other things in between, but pray tell. Yeah. With Pose. The category is... I will tell you, I binge watched in a rather unhealthy manner. Pose. People <laughs> <laughs> like, like, what you doing? You want to come out? No, I'm good. I'm, I'm just... And I was so like so upset that the final season was so short. But we can get into that separately. But first of all, I want to ask you about Pray Tell in Pose. Whether when you first read it, whether you recognize it for being as transformative as a piece of art, as it has shown itself to be? First of all, the audition came to me at a very low time. I had won the Tony. I had won the Grammy. The next step is to get a TV show or, you know, try to break in 
to film and television, I wasn't crossing over. I was being dismissed. I was being dismissed just like it was before I had the Tony. And I was really, really upset. And I had been up in Boston directing a play. I would go in for these roles and like, I wouldn't even be called in unless the description said flamboyantly dot, dot, dot. Like, so there's that. And then I would go in and not only would I not even get called back, the feedback would be, he's too flamboyant. And they would then hire a white straight boy. This was my life as a queer artist for years. For years. And I had just hit a wall and I was driving back from Boston and I had just been dismissed for like the last time as far as I was concerned. And I was like, you know, I love writing. I love directing. It's expanded my reach. I'm just going to do that. I can't go through this anymore. And I was like crying with my sister on the phone. I had to pull over. I had a bit of a breakdown. And I hung up the phone and the phone rings and it's my manager. Ryan Murphy is doing a show on the ball culture and they want to call you in. And I was like, oh my God. Oh my God, I don't want to get my hopes up. Oh my God, oh what my is God, this? Like, oh I my can't God. believe this is happening. This is it. I knew immediately. I knew because that was what I've been waiting for. I had to prepare myself for that. Kinky Boots could not have been anybody else. Pray Tell could not have been anybody else. They didn't have a Pray Tell. They had me auditioning for the, for the role of the uh, dance teacher that Charlene Woodard ended up playing. And I went in and I auditioned and I said to the casting director, I lived through this, I'm old enough to have lived through this. Like, what about one of the mothers of the houses of, or, you know, one of those things? And she said, uh, well, Ryan is gonna do all transgender women, which I was like, oh. I mean, I was just blown away just hearing about it. And she said, let me talk to him and we'll say, I said, well, you're gonna need an adult over there, right? Like, yes. in that yes. world, there's no reason for you to, have me in another space. It's a waste of both of our time. Ryan Murphy felt the same way. And there was no pray tell. And he had set up a live callback. So he flew in all the creators and the producers and the powers that be and put them in a live room, which was really smart because I never got cast from a tape. Right, it was when they were in the room and could see my work because my choices are strong. And if I'm not in a room and it's not something that they want, but they can ask me to do something different, then not only can they see that I can do something different, they also can see my work. They also can see that I have craft. I have a skill set. And so the callback was me reading a bunch of declarations. It was like 17 pages of declarations. I have to say, bitch, you do have nerve. Now tonight, sunflower, sunshine, making the little things grow. Work, Miss Thing, Miss Thing with the reveal. Stop the music, baby. Stop the music. I'm going to need y'all to simmer down. Because they hadn't written a role. (laughs) There was no role written. And then Ryan said, pull up a chair. And he sat me in the center of the room and asked me about Trump. And about 30 minutes later, <laughs> the role of Pray Tell was born. 
You know, and he said it was the rage, your vulnerability and your rage simultaneously that was the birth of Pray Tell. And I was thinking about Pray Tell and I thought, again, here was somebody whose superpower is their voice, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is their wit, their vulnerability, their authenticity. What did playing Pray Tell teach you? It taught me never doubt my truth ever again. When I jumped off that ledge of authenticity, when I decided to choose myself over any kind of fame, any kind of success, I didn't know what was going to happen. And I was willing and open for anything because the truth was more important than anything. It's like, right, I, I did this. I set myself up for success because I chose this. And now look at what I get to be. Look at who I get to be in this world. It's magical. Pray tell it was HIV positive. Yes. And that mirrored your truth, mm-hmm. which you had kept secret from a wider circle, mm-hmm. the decision to let that out, that Hollywood Reporter exclusive to, to speak your truth. I guess I still just want to ask, how afraid were you to take that step? 14 years in and with the success I had, the fear was no longer. I think at the time of the diagnosis, 2007, I say that was the worst year Mm -hmm. for me because in February of that year, I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. By March, I was signing bankruptcy papers. And by June, I was HIV positive with no medical insurance. So all of the statistical prophecies had come true. I was everything statistically that they, I put in quotes, said I would be. All those voices from your childhood, I'm yeah, sure. and every not just childhood, the government, the, you know, the church, everybody. I was everything they said I would be, in a negative way, and it was also 2007, and I didn't want to, I didn't want to ruin my chances to be able to work, and that was still a thing in 2007, discrimination because of HIV. So, I shut up. But 14 years later, I mean, health-wise, because of these diagnoses, I go to the doctor every three months. I'm the healthiest I've ever been in my life. And all of my dreams were coming true. So now all of the theories, the condemnation from the church, all of that stuff no longer had any credibility. I had surpassed all expectation with doing exactly the opposite of what they said I would do and be. I'm thriving, I'm successful, I'm living healthily, I'm not dying. 
I have the disease and I'm living. Even though you didn't speak out about it to the wider world until 2021, you were still using your voice on the issue of HIV AIDS. Well, I was always doing that because that's what I, I came out in 1985. Mm-hmm. And we all went to the front lines to fight for our lives during mm-hmm. the AIDS crisis. And how did you negotiate that tension again? Well, I had already set it up. You yeah. know, it was already set up that I was an ally. Yes. I was already an ally and I was on the front lines doing activist work from the time I was like 16. So I was already in that space and there was never a question about me being yeah. in that space. I just kept showing up in the way that I had always shown up. I never had to say anything to anybody ever, really, because it wasn't out of the ordinary for me to show up in those spaces. That was what I always did. Your star has continued to, to grow and shine brighter. What is your sense of the mission now? Has it changed from Lola back in 2013? Has it become more defined how you use your voice and what you speak to? It gets more defined and more refined with every breath. And I have to say, the law of attraction works. We speak life into ourselves or not. And um, I continue to do that. I continue to try to speak life into myself in a world where just showing up as myself is a revolutionary act. Why is it so triggering for some parts of society to see a Black man claim all parts of himself fully and unapologetically? Because we're not supposed to do that. We're not supposed to be able to do that. It was set up systemically for us to never have agency and to never be fully realized as human beings. Our constitution says we're three-fifths of human being. You know, Barack Obama was never supposed to happen. We make ways out of no way, always and forever have. And when you make progress, the backlash is swift and it is intense. It's backlash from the white side of things, but also, unfortunately, the phobias within the Black community are also very strong and also very powerful and also based on the colonizers that was sort of thrust on our people. And so now there's a rejection of queerness in the Black community that does not make sense. If you go back to our histories, the two-spirit exists in all indigenous cultures, including the African culture. The two-spirit would be the equivalent of what queerness is right now. The masculine and the feminine in the same space who are the protectors of the tribes because we have direct access to both the masculine and the feminine. The yin and the yang. And so how dare I, right? I have a song on my new album called Audacity. How dare I? What I find, particularly with men, is that the audacity that I have as a Black queer man to stand in the fullness of that truth and wish a motherfucker would. I wish y'all would try me. In that Christian Siriano would try me in this ball gown you know, and, and see. Th- and that is new. You know, because once again... Queerness is synonymous with weakness. 
Yes, yes. For whatever reason. And I've been seeing a shift. I've been seeing a change in particularly the Black homophobic space. I do stand at an intersection that creates a conversation that's different from what I grew up with. You know, straight Black men are stopping me on the street and going, thank you. Mm-hmm. Keep doing what you're doing. creating more space. And that's the thing, right? It's just about creating more space for people to be their authentic selves. Yeah. It's not about saying you have to be like me. It's no. like you be you. Yes. Right? Yeah, totally. You said that change can happen collectively, of course, but really it starts with us as individuals. So I was wondering how you feel just as these winds of anti-LGBTQI+ discrimination and hate seem to be like gathering a pace again. First of all, I was wondering whether you worry whether hard-fought, hard-gained wins and freedoms will be reversed, how hopeful you are about the future, but also just about what we all can be doing right now. I choose to be hopeful because like John Lewis said, we can't lose hope. It's the only thing that gets me out of bed in the morning. And like I said, it's a choice because there's not much to be hopeful about. It's a choice. I choose it. Frederick Douglass said eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. That's right. The work continues until our last breath from everybody collectively. And I think what needs to happen, and this is what I've been trying to do and say, is that the messaging needs to change. The civil rights messaging that I remember is a change is going to come, right? That very popular Sam Cooke song, which internalized for us means a change is going to come and that's it. I think many of us have unconsciously lived with that idea. We got the Civil Rights Act. We got women's rights. We got Roe versus V. Wade. We got marriage equality. We got a Black president. We got it. We're done. It's over. And we sat on our sofas and ate bonbons for eight years. And now we realize that all of that stuff that we fought for can be reversed if we're not eternally vigilant till the day we die. So I feel like the good news about this time is that the younger generation who were born into these rights that we fought for them to have are in danger of going away. So they understand the process now. So I feel like they're engaged in ways that my generation was not, even though I was personally, the generation was not. They came out and saved our democracy. Yes, they did. The kids came out and saved our asses. So for me, in this moment, I've learned so much about what is happening and what isn't happening inside of our government. It's convoluted. The shit was written by hypocrites. I went to see 1776 on the night of the election because I couldn't even watch it to really think about like, oh, right. Edward Rudledge of South Carolina made Thomas Jefferson strike the paragraph about slavery being wrong, about slavery mandating that slavery go away. So the compromise in the Declaration of Independence 
was on my people's backs. Oh, right. None of this is new. That's the, the part that's the most frustrating up. for yes. me in terms of how it's presented in our news cycles. Our news cycles present this shit like it's new. None of it is new. The game was built this way. It was built this way. It's working exactly the way it's supposed to. Stacey Abrams I always says say it. that. It's working exactly the way that it was supposed to work. This is what it was. It was built to do just this. Keep your slaves while you're talking about the other side of your neck about abolishing slavery. No, you don't want to abolish. None of y'all do. And the entire economy of our nation depends on it. Totally. And still does in different ways. And I will say this, and I mean it. First of all, they've never taught history properly in America, ever. It hasn't been till recently that I've gone into the depths of what that means and what that is. And because I didn't know the depths of the setup, I was able to dream beyond my circumstance. I think there's a lot of truth to that. I don't know now, like post-George Floyd and reading books like Cast and I'm reading the Mm -hmm. 1619 Project now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The whole point of slavery was to take away our ability to dream. It was to strip us of all joy, all, all hope, all dreams. So my goal is to make sure that that isn't where we stay. And I have to say, even down to it being 50-50 in our world, it's always been 50-50. That's the hardest part for me. When you think about Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock, 50-50, really? There's still 25% of whatever yes, yes. state it was that wants to keep slavery language on the books? Like, really? I can and I won't. I'm completely the opposite. And I will continue to stand for what's right. Because you have to stand for something or you'll fall for anything. Bring it. I say bring it. Because quiet as it's kept, it's already a civil war. Whether you indict Trump or not, the civil war is in our minds now. Yeah. It's in our minds. It's about chaos. 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 That's the war. Because chaos keeps the losing party in power. Period. Right? That's the war. We're already in it. So it doesn't matter. Come on and bring it to the streets. Do people understand the urgency of the moment, though? We held on to the Senate. And we lost, what, five, seven seats in the House? Let's talk historically. The president in power, the party in power. That's right. They defied history. They defied history. Obama lost 60 seats. They defied history with a president with historically low approval ratings as well. And yet, we won this round. I hear you. But the question is 2024 now. We won this round and we have to be in this moment so that we You're can right. get them to You're get right. we can get them to fucking codify shit that they You're didn't right. codify for 50 years. 
You're right. What do you mean it's not codified? I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't even know that was a thing. Y'all have been sitting around here for 50 years and you didn't codify it so that it wouldn't be reversed? What the fuck? And that is the urgency I'm speaking about. The urgency not just of the ordinary people like you and I, but the legislators and those who have the ability to make permanent change. Codify it! What are you fucking waiting for? That is the question now, going forward. And that is the question for people like you who've dedicated yourself to service in terms of these next months. Yes, when they go low, we go high. Yes. We have to redefine what that looks like. Because the game has changed. So much of our democracy is based on someone's moral fortitude. It's not a law. Yeah. What happens when they have no moral fortitude? Right. What happens then? If you're counting on people to be good people who do good things, what happens when you're dealing with bad people who are committed to doing bad things? And that's what we've just seen. And so my hope is that the people who are in office finally make that change. You know, a shift is happening. We have to start redefining what going high looks like and play the game that we're in and stop taking a bag of popcorn to a gunfight. (laughs) So as we bring this to a close, as you talk about the chaos that is already reigning and has been unleashed internally in our bodies, externally in society, what does self-care look like for you now? I'm still working on it. I'm... Moving towards Buddhism, first and foremost. I am working on like meditation and mindfulness work and that kind of thing. Just trying to get my mind together, making sure that my mental health is first and foremost in my space. Because, um, that's what's going to keep me sane. You're holding on to joy. You're holding on to hope. Yeah. It's a choice. And it is recommitting moment to moment to choosing it for me. Because we live in a space and in a world where like the negative is always what's at the forefront for some reason. Louder. And I don't, I, I choose something else. I'm choosing something else. May we all choose something better and more hopeful and more joyful. Billy Porter, what a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You can't help but be stirred up by Billy Porter. His painful childhood and long road to stardom deeply ingrained within him the necessity of using both his voice and platform to push for meaningful change for those living with HIV AIDS and for broader acceptance and inclusion of the LGBTQ plus community. But his impact is so much wider than those communities. Just the sight of Billy Porter living authentically and unapologetically is creating more space for every single one of us to live our own lives fully and honestly. Billy Porter's passionate use of his voice through word and song is his superpower. Now, I can't sing a note, and maybe you can't either, but what we can all tap into is that passion for truth, for being an agent of change, for remaining committed to the path of helping others, even when it's difficult or scary. 
By the end of my conversation with Billy, I was definitely fired up and perhaps I even felt a little braver as I continued to shape my own journey of being an activist. If what you've just heard from Billy left you wanting more of his wisdom, then you should definitely check out his memoir, Unprotected. It is searing, beautiful, and like the man himself, unforgettable. This season, we featured guests who've put making a difference in the world at the top of their list of priorities. People who don't care about cancellation or the consequences that can come with calling out the ills of our world. I was left truly inspired by Inez Cantor-Freedom, who has put his life and career on the line to call out human rights abuses taking place in Turkey and China. As well as by Busy Phillips, who has never shied away from grabbing the mic to stand up to those who really shouldn't have any say whatsoever in matters of one's sexuality or reproductive rights. Also making my list of most memorable guests from the season is Justin Baldoni, whose vulnerability is opening up the eyes of other men to the misogyny and patriarchy that continues to harm so many of us. And of course, today's guest, Billy Porter, whose willingness to use his voice to advocate for others in the LGBTQ community and beyond has left a lasting impression on me. I hope everyone listening has been energized by the guests this season to get involved in a movement, whatever cause that may be. There is so much work to be done, but don't let that scare you. Start small. Fixing the world must become a collective experience, but change, that starts with our own individual actions. Thank you so much to all our listeners and thank you to our season sponsor, Mercedes-Benz. As always, check out the show notes for resources and learning materials from our guests. Please take time to rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Apple Podcasts. Follow me at Aisha Sasay on Twitter and on Instagram at I am Aisha Sasay. The Accidental Activist is a Wonder Media Network production. Executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and me, Aisha Sasay. Our producers are Brittany Martinez, Taylor Williamson, and Chelsea Daniel. Our editor is Liz Smith, and our production assistant is Abby Dell. Guest booking by Mary Hollis Williams of Good Talent Lodge, and special thanks to Arella Productions. Take care, everyone. Until the next time, bye for now.